0: The following sermon is from Dr. Dan Kitnoya, pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you've never reached out to Calvary before, we'd like to hear from you. Visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. And now, here's Dr. Dan. you have your copy of the scriptures, join me if you would in Revelation chapter three, Revelation 3, verse 14 to 22. Here's the headline. Jesus confronts lukewarm Christians and calls them to repent and become zealous. It is football season and football is a game that is not for the weak at heart. It is for the zealous. In fact, I remember in 5th and 6th grade football, one of the things that they had to do to teach us, to help us be zealous football players was to help us not be afraid of contact because football is a contact sport. And we played this, we did this one drill that the coaches came up with. I don't know what it's called. I call it the line drill. But there'd be a a yard line and you'd have a group of guys lined up over here and then another group of guys lined up over there. One guy has a football and the other guy gets down in a three-point stance and then the coach blows the whistle. That's my whistle blow. And they, you run at each other and you fall down that's roughly the extent of it and in that drill you learn to tackle you learn not to fumble and hopefully you learn not to be afraid of contact theory is sound unfortunately for my coaches they didn't bargain for one thing because on that field of fifth and sixth graders was a man amongst boys named Kevin Kukling he was not the biggest kid on the team but for a sixth grader holy smokes was he strong and he was low to the ground, and he was fast. And I think he had more zeal for physical contact than he actually had for the game of football. And so what we would do, the coaches, I don't know if they knew this, but we were all doing this. We would be standing on this line, and if Kukling's over there, we're going, one, two, three, four, okay, he's fourth back, I'm fifth in line, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to die today. Homeboy in front of me, he's he's the sacrificial lamb. We will send flowers. I'm glad I'm not number four. And so I still remember to this day, you know, it's funny the stuff you remember. I was afraid. That's why it stuck in my brain, you know. I was like, I was really close to meeting my maker early, right? And um, Kevin Kukum was going against some poor sacrificial lamb. I don't know what his name was, but they took off at the whistle. And it was like somebody took baseball bats and just whack and they all hit the ground. Kevin Kukling bounces up like nothing happened. And the coach just like takes his hat off. Kukling, you can take a break. You gave it all you had. And he's like, no way, coach. This was fun. Thankfully, they drew, called an end to the drill so that we didn't all get injured. And the kid kinda, The other kid kind of wobbled off a little woozy after the This was before the whole uh, concussion protocol. So he just kind of wandered off. And the idea of the drill was this. If you learn to not be afraid to get hit in football, you are more likely to play with zeal and thus be more productive. If you're afraid to get hit, you are not productive. There's just no other way around it. If you're always afraid that the other guy's going to light you up and that's the end of it, you're not going to play hard and you probably won't play at all after the season is over. And The idea was to make us become productive football players. For many Christians, we can become lukewarm. And that is a metaphor, a simile. The way Jesus uses that word is unproductive. In our passage this morning, like a good head coach, Jesus confronts lukewarm Christians and calls them to repent and be zealous. Please stand if you're able to in honor of the reading of God's Word. Revelation 3, we're going to read verse 17-19. through But keep your Bible open because we're going to look at the entire letter to the Laodicean church. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for today and for the opportunity to gather for worship. We we thank You for the turning of the seasons. We thank You for our farmers, and we pray that You'd bless their crop this season. We pray for uh, those who are gathered together with us who are sick in body or perhaps have, are, are struggling in spirit. I pray that You'd strengthen them and encourage them. Pray for those who are gathered with us online, that You would encourage them, strengthen them in spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This letter has a lot going on to it, a lot of truth, threads of truth. And Lord willing, I will remember to pull each one together, but I've struggled mightily because there is a great deal in the passage. The truth of the matter is some Christians are zealous and some are not. Some were zealous and some are no longer and some are zealous for Jesus. And perhaps this morning you are on a journey returning to Jesus and you are a feeling a growth in zeal. But when we say that some... Jesus says, I should say. When Jesus says that some might not be zealous, a question might be, why are some Christians lukewarm? Why don't they contribute? There's a bunch of different reasons, but I'm going to list a few just because they were near and dear to my heart years ago. I, I pastored a couple, and uh, he was a deacon, and she... Uh, well, long before I came, she stopped being active. In fact, the truth was, while he was a deacon in our church, he was not active at all and bordered on it was time to talk about having him come off of the deacon board because he just wasn't involved. And so when his letter of resignation from the deacon board came in, I, was not, I wasn't surprised. And what I was told was that it wasn't always so with these two. A time had been when they were zealous, passionate servants in the church. But all I'd ever known of them from the beginning was lukewarm. And so, sadly, she entered the hospital and she did not come out, but I I visited with her. And she brought up the question that was on my mind since I'd known her. She started talking about why she didn't serve at all anymore. And I knew that she had been a part of starting a ministry that had exploded with growth at our old, at my old church. She and one other lady, she said, "This she was not a good speaker, didn't say many words. She just said, I did the best I could do, and then they just took it from me. She was hurt. Insulted. Shoved aside. There was certainly... The truth of the matter was that they needed help. But to simply shove someone aside, not offer assistance, but just take it from them, was hurtful. She never returned to service, and neither did her husband, really. He was a deacon in name only by the time I knew him. And I knew that the story was true because I had heard glimpses of it before from other people. And and so sometimes people serve but then stop because they get hurt and they're afraid to be hurt again. Again. Sometimes the pastor disappoints us. I hope that I never do that to you, but there's likely to be a time, if I haven't done it already, that I will disappoint you. I make no claim to be a perfect man. But sometimes the pastor fails us, and sometimes they fail miserably, and when that happens, sometimes Christians begin to lose their zeal. I had a pastor who, will just make it simple, had a moral, moral failure. And they came to me because they saw that as a young man, I was starting to come alive in Jesus. And they were worried that I was going to fall away. And I just simply said, I liked him, but I never served him. It was always Jesus that I was serving. See, when we serve one another, we're ultimately serving Jesus. And so for some lukewarm Christians, however, other things in life become more important than Jesus so slowly. But surely, they begin to cool off back out of ministry, become erratic in church attendance, and it's like a slow motion train wreck that you can see that their zeal for Christ is disappearing. For some, it was they never got over COVID. I'm not talking about long COVID. I'm talking about church shut down for a while and they got used to not going. It's easy to do. But then when the doors opened back up, reconnecting with the church family wasn't a priority. And some are like I was. I joined Team Jesus as a kid, but from the age of 17 to 24 years old, I chose to ride the spiritual pine that we call a pew. I was there every Sunday, but I was content to sit on the sidelines of the kingdom of God and not contribute anything to Team Jesus. In case you're missing my metaphor, I'm talking about to the kingdom of God. I showed up, but that was as far as I was willing to go. American Christianity is full of Christians like this. Now, first off, if you don't know me, you're like, man, this guy's just hitting it hard. You want to know? Here? Here's a little philosophy of preaching. You ready? When Jesus speaks firmly, you better believe I'm going to speak firmly. And he is not coming at us like a cheerleader, he is coming at us like a fired up, fed up coach who's getting in our faces. And so, here, American Christianity is full of Christians that are kind of like this. Who aren't really interested in serving Jesus. Aren't really interested in growing close to Jesus. Aren't really interested in growing growing close to God's people. Are not interested in living a holy life where sin is being set aside. They're not interested in becoming like Jesus. That is what lukewarm Christianity is. Jesus doesn't come to the lukewarm Christian like a cheerleader who says, we are proud of you. Hey, 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 we are proud of you. They do that at the end of a basketball game when they lose. We're still proud of you. But Jesus isn't doing that. He is in our faces. He comes to the lukewarm Christian like a fired-up, fed-up coach because Jesus can't stomach lukewarm Christians and he cannot stomach a lukewarm church. He can't stomach lukewarm. He doesn't like it. And I'll explain to you what I mean as we come along. But I want to pause one more thing. The book of Revelation is a complicated book. But one of the things, that even as I was, I was talking about with some godly men yesterday, I, I believe that Jesus is talking to Christians here who are not zealous. But there are some godly men who love the Bible every bit as much as I do and love Jesus as much as I do, who think, no, I don't think the church in Laodicea is saved at all. And here's the thing. I can tell you from experience that a lukewarm Christian looks almost no different from an unbeliever. Other than I, sh- like in my case, I showed up on Sunday. But I showed up on Sunday, not because I wanted to worship Jesus. I was a Kitnoya, and Kitnoyas go to church. I was lukewarm at best. To see my life outside a Sunday morning, there was no evidence that I was a Christian at, at best lukewarm. To the point that when the Lord really got a hold of my life and I started to look back, I said, was I saved at 6 or was I saved at 24 when I actually started to follow Jesus? And so Jesus is confronting lukewarm Christians because, as we see in verses 14-17, through 17, Jesus does not want us to be lukewarm Christians. And he does not want us to be a lukewarm church. Let's read. I'll pause in comment as we go, and I may circle back if something. There's a lot, a lot in these verses. And to the angel of the church, that's the pastor, in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen. The faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. There's two things that we got to talk about right there. From the beginning, this picture, this, this composite picture of Jesus as the Amen, faithful and true, it speaks of Jesus as one who tells the truth. In America today, we talk a bit about your truth, finding your truth. I've got mine, you've got yours, and I've got news for Jesus, has news for us. If your truth and my truth does not line up with the truth of God, our truth is a lie. At best, it's, not, it's an opinion. And, and so Jesus says, I am the truth. You can bank on it. He will tell it like it is. When you see Jesus later in Revelation nineteen eleven, here's what's going on. He de- he's described once again as this faithful and true witness who goes out to judge the nations... And make war on the nations. Why? Because the nations are in rebellion against God. They are in rebellion against Christ. The book of Revelation, the way it all comes to a conclusion at the end, is Jesus putting an end to the rebellion on earth. And by the way, as I read it, while you and I might be standing on the battlefield with Jesus, we're just kind of standing there. In literature, we're called foils. We just stand there and make the hero look that much better. And we're standing there going, wow, look how hardcore this guy is. Look how powerful he is. And so, Jesus, number one, is the truthful one. Second thing, this is a translation issue. Uh, the beginning of God's creation, most translations say something almost identical to that. The Greek is in English, doc. It, it could be this literally translated, the beginning of God's creation, but most likely what Jesus is being described here as is as the originator of creation. Because all things were made by Him and for Him. Some would read that verse and say, Jesus is the first created being, and that is a heresy. He is the Son of God. Eternal, like God the Father. But still, this idea of Jesus as Creator shows up in the book of Colossians. If you can turn to Colossians 1 quickly, go ahead and get there. This, re- this requires careful examination. First off, the book of Colossians, the letter to the Colossians, rather, was written by the Apostle Paul to that church. And back in those days, things went viral by, uh, that the letter would be sp- sent around to different churches to be read, and that was how biblical truth went viral in the ancient world. So this letter to Colossi was actually about 10 or 15 miles away from the church in Laodicea. So they would have read this letter. And here's what it says in Colossians 1 15 and 16 about Jesus the Creator. He is the image of the invisible God. The first born of all creation sounds very similar. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything that exists, exists by him, whether it's the institution of marriage, whether it's the earth itself, whether it's you, whether it's oxygen that you breathe, all things were created by him and for him. He is the creator. And so he's right off the bat, two truths. Two important truths. We are seeing Jesus portrayed in his glo- as He truly is. In all of His glory in the book of Revelation. And in this verse, two truths. He is 100% truthful, and He is the Creator of all that we see. And it was created by Him for Him. When Jesus comes forward to put an end to rebellion on earth, it's like Psalm 2 is fulfilled, and Jesus, the Son of God, steps forward and says, okay, Father... I will take my inheritance now. And in the taking of his inheritance, he puts down the rebellion on the earth that he created. Verse 15, let's continue. The truthful one says this, I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So, because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. They thought they were hot stuff. And Jesus is like, you're not well-dressed. You have no clothes on. You're not healthy. You're wretched. You're, You're pursuing health and wealth and prosperity. Well, guess what? You're wretchedly naked and you have a problem. That's what he's telling them. He is hitting them in the face with the truth. See, they were prideful because they were rich. It's not wrong to be rich. But Laodicea was a rich city in a strategic location. They had a lot going for them. But one thing they did not have was good water. And so this image here of Jesus spewing out the water, let me explain it to you. It was sort of lost to us for a long time. And then archaeologists were digging around in Laodicea and they found pipes left over from an ancient aqueduct. Turns out the Laodiceans were piping in water from most likely Hierapolis, which was sort of close by. And the water in Hierapolis was known for two things. It was a natural hot spring that was loaded with minerals. People would go to Laodicea, I'm sorry, Hierapolis, to soak in the hot springs because it made their bodies feel better. Alternatively, Colossae nearby, like other cities in the region, had cold springs. They were refreshing. To this day, hikers, when they're traveling through the area, will drink from those springs because they're that clean and fresh. And so what Jesus is saying is this. so way would happen was the water would be piped from Hierapolis or some city like it, and by the time it got to, to Laodicea, it wasn't hot. It was not cold. And apparently lukewarm... Mineral water tastes disgusting. And Pete was notorious, apparently. The, the embarrassment of Laodicea, as rich as they were, they were so rich that when an earthquake devastated the entire region, including their city, when the Roman government offered to finance the repairs, they said, we don't need anything. We'll take care of it ourselves. And so, but the embarrassing thing of Laodicea was that they, their water was horrible. People would... Come to travel thinking they're going to get a nice drink of water and spit it out. And Jesus says, look, if you don't repent, if you, you are stagnant as a Christian. If you don't repent, I'm going to spew you out of, the, out of my mouth just like people spew out your nasty, lukewarm mineral water. That's the image here. So Jesus, he's calling them out because they're not living out their purpose. As Christians, guess what? We are saved on purpose for a purpose. Ephesians two eight through ten. If you're if you've been around church for a long time, you probably know those words. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works, so that no one can boast. And it goes on in verse ten and says, we are new creatures created in Christ Jesus from before the foundation of the world. I'm messing up the order, but you get the point. For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are saved on purpose for a purpose. And what he is essentially telling the the Laodicean Christians is this. You're not living out your purpose. The purpose in your life is much bigger than you or I. And they were only living for the purpose of pleasing themselves. They never got in the game. Some Christians never get in the game. We had a thing that some kids would say. They'd say, That kid's a slacker when we're on the football team. Well, some kids they would dub as the slacker of the year award winner. Some were runners up. What that meant was they would do the bare minimum. They'd get mom and dad to fill out the permission slip. They would have the doctor give them a physical. They'd show up to practice and not try at all. They were not productive football players. Some Christians do the bare minimum. Jesus calls them lukewarm, unproductive. And that's how Jesus is talking. In case you're wondering, am I saying works save us? I am not. Good works do not save us. Salvation produces good works in us. If you are not producing good works, it might be that you are not saved. Am I in a position to judge that? No. No. But some people look at this letter and they say, are they saved or not? Some say, no, they're not saved. And some say, like I'm saying, I think they're saved, clearly not living like they're saved. Some do the bare minimum. They pray a prayer, praise God for that, get baptized, praise God for that. But it doesn't go any further and some simply won't get baptized at all. Baptism is expected of us, Christians, In a lukewarm, in in a climate controlled building, we can get the tank nice and comfy and you can get in and obey Jesus. It's not a hard thing to do. So, my question are you in the game, Christians? Are you productive? See, Jesus deserves passionate followers who glorify him by their faith and works. Christian, If you are lukewarm, Jesus is speaking to you this morning. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. And he is telling lukewarm Christians that they need to be healed. In verse 18 and 19, we see that Jesus is the cure for lukewarm Christianity. Verse 18 and 19. I counsel you to buy from me. He's using a metaphor for come to me. Buy from me gold refined by fire. That's a metaphor for spiritual riches. The kind that that don't rust out and don't wear out. They're eternal. The things that you and I do for Christ are eternal. Buy the gold from me that is refined by fire so that you may be rich And white garments which represent righteousness so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. There's a lot going on in here. I'm going to try my best to pull it all together. But Laodicea had gained fame because of two things, maybe three, but the two I'm going to point out here is this. Their shepherds had developed, had bred sheep that were known for their smooth, black wool. And they were a huge contributor to the ancient fashion industry. If you wanted a black suit, you go on down to Laodicea. Although they didn't have suits back then. Jesus and the disciples didn't wear them, but you get the point. If you wanted a nice black dress for prom, yesterday I saw people I think were going to homecoming. If you wanted a a black homecoming dress, or, or whatever you want to get a black dress for, you go on down to Laodicea. That's the place to go. What Jesus is saying is, uh, don't go to the market. They don't have what you really need. Don't go to Amazon looking for what you think will make you happy and satisfied in life. Come to me. The true riches that are eternal, I provide. You want to be clothed in these nice black, black clothes that everyone travels up from all over to get a hold of? I got something better. Garments of white that are righteous. Purity. That's what he's talking about. Spiritual riches that moth can't eat and rust can't destroy the second thing they were known for was they produced an eye medicine called tephra phrygia tephra phrygia they would send it out in these little uh like t- i guess they're kind of like bricks tablets they call them but then they would get out to the city they were going and they'd chop off a piece of it and they would turn it into a salve and then put it on their eyes and a, the noted physician of ancient rome known as named galen mentioned this, this eye medicine. In a day and age where there wasn't a ton of really effective medicines, this Phrygia actually got the job done. And so they were known for this. And Jesus is like, look, you're impressed with your medical industry. Well, guess what? You're still blind. You are spiritually blind. Pride has stopped you from seeing your true spiritual condition. Jesus sounds like a football coach. Not a cheerleader this morning. But here's the thing, I had one football coach, only one football coach, Coach Hatfield. And I think he became a coach because he just liked yelling at people and it gave him a good excuse to yell at people. But Jesus is not doing that. He is getting in our face because lukewarm does not look good on us as Christians. Lukewarm, well, Jesus says it, Some translations say he wants to vomit it out of his mouth. Spit it out. Spew it out. He can't stand it. Pride had blinded the church in Laodicea to their true condition. And success caused them to lose interest in serving Jesus. Success and pride were hindering what was going on. Success and opportunity are good things, but uh, even today they can cause some people to become lukewarm. Get a boyfriend... He can, sometimes boyfriends and girlfriends distract our attention away from Jesus parents you ever see that I lived it my parents will be watching online later they'd say oh, yeah, we saw that sometimes a boyfriend and a girlfriend which is a great opportunity maybe uh, can distract you from Jesus and lead you to lukewarmness sometimes sports which are a good thing can lead you away from Jesus sometimes hobbies like fishing I like to fish I'm getting back into weightlifting again. That could be a distraction. It was a distraction. Because I was good at it. And it took a lot of my focus. My mom, my mom got in my face sort of as much as the mom's going to get in your face about it. But I remember her saying to me, I wish that you put as much in your walk with Jesus as you do that weightlifting. She was saying you're lukewarm. She was right. I think God answered her prayer eventually. Sports, hobbies, boats, jeeps. Anything that is a good thing from God can become a thing that distracts us from God. To the point that we want the presence, P R E S E N T S, more than the presence. P R E S E N C E. Success had blinded the church in Laodicea to their true condition. And success caused them to lose interest in Jesus. Pride and success are still threats to our walk with Christ to this day. It can cause us to be lukewarm. America has a lot of lukewarm Christians. Perhaps because we are the land of opportunity. And lots of people want to come here because there's no no place in the world I'd rather live. Man are we blessed, but man, do those blessings distract us from Jesus? The church must repent of lukewarm Christianity. We must be zealous. Why? Because Dan said so? No, because Jesus deserves it. And he's commanding us to zealous, to be earnest, to set one's heart upon, to be completely intent. Upon we must come to Jesus for the true fashion that looks beautiful all times. They have a shirt that I saw, kindness is is beautiful. Well, fair enough. What Jesus wants us to be is beautifully dressed in robes of righteousness and rich in spiritual riches, and we can only get that by coming to him. Amazon.com doesn't sell it. Some preachers try to sell it. Hello. But on what Jesus is offering, you really can't buy. The question I wrote in my notes when I was studying was, how do you buy something that can only be given? It's a metaphor. Come to me and I will give you what you really need. Pride, however, can keep us from seeing our true condition, our true need. They thought because they were well-dressed and well-fed that they had everything they need, but pride was keeping them from seeing their true condition. They were far from Jesus. But Jesus knows the truth about us. He knows what we did, what we said. He knows when there was an opportunity to, good, but to do good, but we didn't do it. He knows all of those things, and yet He still wants us to be close to Him. He knows it all. And He promises warm fellowship with those who receive Him. Look at verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears My voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with Me. The metaphor there uh, really describes obviously Jesus standing outside the door knocking. He says, when you let Me in, I'm going to come in and sup with you. I'm going to have dinner, lunch, coffee the idea is warm table fellowship which was a big deal in the ancient world table fellowship over a meal especially in the ancient world is warm friendship with food laughter and joy you ever reconnect with old friends at i don't know maybe mad goat over coffee what a great name for a coffee shop get some coffee catch up on what god's been doing in your life what a great question what's god been doing in your life lately What's God been doing in your church lately? What have you seen God do? Catching up with friends, or perhaps Thanksgiving, one of the wonderful new traditions. Uh, I don't know if it's, it's new to me anyway. It was pretty new about 10 years ago to me. People would gather at Thanksgiving, eat the best buffet you could get. That's some good eating, right? But then we would sit around and take turns saying what God, you were most thankful for, thankful to God for in the last year. Now you have an idea of the warm table fellowship that Jesus is talking about. Christian, do you feel that warm fellowship with God? Was there a time when you felt it more strongly? Would you like to get back to that? Perhaps this morning as we're talking, you're saying, no, I'm, I can see God's drawing me back. Well, I'd say keep on going. See, Jesus rebukes us harshly, but once He sees us coming home, He's like, Keep coming. I want to have warm fellowship with you. Jesus wants to have fellowship with us. The question is, is this. Do you want to have fellowship with Him? Do you want to be close to Him? I can tell you from 17 to 24, I came to church on Sunday, but the idea of being close to Jesus wasn't really on the radar for me. But Jesus wants to be close to us. How do you draw close? Well, at Calvary we talk about Three things. Gather, grow, go. Gather for worship, but I can tell you something. As I've told you before, you can show up to church and not really want to be there. I went to church because it was expected of me. Listen, parents, it's, you, you do need to keep bringing your kids to church. But when the Holy Spirit's at work in us, eventually what we're going to see is how great Jesus is, and then we will want to come to church for worship. As a pastor, I've known shut-ins, who would do anything to be back in the church house. When I went back home to visit my family, when I preached at my niece's wedding, on Sunday morning, my mom was having a rough morning. And so they stayed home and watched it on the computer, but they would much rather have been with their family, their church family. And we have people, I know Larry, Larry Schonert, and Jill are watching online. I talked to them yesterday. They miss us, but he can't be here. You see, come to church on Sunday to worship. You know, you can be in church and be 10 miles away. and Just like you can be in a car with your spouse or your parents and be 10 miles away. Chrissy hates when I look at my phone because I'm 10 miles away. And I don't multitask. She's trying not to say amen. Come to church to be with Jesus. Even if your parents made you, you should still come to be with Jesus. Gather for worship. Grow in groups. we got Bible studies and small groups and all kinds of things. Meeting throughout the week. And maybe you say it's hard to enter into a new group. If you're in a, a group that's been meeting for a long time together, recognize that it is hard for a new person to come. But you guys are smart, loving people. I know you'll reach out to them and welcome them. See, when somebody comes to your group for the first time, maybe the first time ever, man, that's a big step for them. And there was a lot of God activity going on to bring him there. So recognize it. Celebrate it. Maybe don't do cheerleaders. We are proud of you stuff. But inside maybe do that. When I see God doing something in someone's life and I see them growing in a new way, inside I'm doing the cheerleader thing, but I'm trying to keep it cool because I don't want to scare them off. All right, so at Sunday school teacher, be happy when they show up and they're new to your class. But don't make too big of a deal because we're Americans. We want to be chill, right? So gather for worship, grow in groups, and then grow in personal Bible study and in prayer. And I have, here's a pitfall, I have read the Bible for more like a formality at times. I've got to read three chapters today, so I'm going to read my three chapters. That's the Bible reading plan. And there are days when being disciplined because your discipline is good, but it's so much better when you really read the Bible and pray so you can connect with Jesus. Kind of like going to church is great and it's even better when you go to church to connect with Jesus. And then go. Find a place to serve God either inside the church or outside of the church. You begin to do those things. Well, That's the pathway for growth that we talk about here. But it's also the pathway to grow closer to Jesus. And as it would turn out, the closer we get to Him, the more we become like Him. One of the strange things about being married is that occasionally I see my angel of a wife, start to talk like me at times. Similarly, when you grow close to Jesus, you start to talk, act, think more like Jesus. And that's what He's calling you to. And He wants to have warm fellowship with you. But sometimes, we need to crucify our pride in order to get to Jesus. Jesus. And that's hard. But He is worth it. Verse 21 and 22, Jesus promises to reward Christians who overcome the deception of pride. Private Pride is deceptive and it's blinding. And Jesus promised to reward us for overcoming it. Look at verse 21 and 22. The one who conquers, that is, overcomes the temptation of the world, the flesh, the devil, I will grant him to sit with Me on the throne as I also have conquered and sat, with my, sat down with my Father on the throne. This idea here is of resting and ruling with God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. We need to overcome our pride if we want to get to Jesus. We have to admit that our walk with Jesus is not what it ought to be. That's pride in the way hindering you, hindering me. In America today, narcissism is the spirit of the day. Narcissism is a wicked pride that makes everything about us and leaves no room for God unless somehow we think God will make our life more beautiful. I think that's how we'd say it. Narcissism is a wicked pride that makes everything about us and leaves no room for God unless God is making our life more beautiful, more rich, more healthy, more, more, more of what America can get and what you might be able to buy. What Jesus offers isn't for sale. That's not a good sales pitch, but that's the facts. He gives it away. and he wants to give it to you. Pride blinds us to our true condition and like a good co- good coach Jesus reveals the truth to us for the Laodiceans the problem was in verse 15 re- yes their lack of works faith without works is dead our good works don't save us but they are a part Of our testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. And He deserves Christians who live like they want to bring glory to Jesus. So the Spirit calls us to repent of selfish pride, to add to our faith good works, to set aside sin, and to grow closer to Him and to the body of Christ. This morning, if you're a Christian, I don't have a really a thermometer that can tell me how hot your face is, how, how, cold, how f- cold and refreshing you are, or how hot and healing you are because the cold water was refreshing, the hot water was healing. Those are good things. I don't have a way to measure what's going on inside your heart and mind, but you know. I suspect Jesus has been knocking on the, on the door of your heart saying it's talking about you. So the solution, if, you're, if you recognize that's where you're at, Jesus didn't want to yell in your face just so you can sit there and say, yeah, you're right, I'm lukewarm. Let's go out to lunch. He does this stuff so that we would recognize where we really are and then draw close to Him for fellowship. Perhaps you're already on that journey back home to Him. Jesus says, don't stop now. There's more to be experienced, more to be enjoyed. The invitation for the Christian is to draw close to Him. But the invitation for the person who has yet to call on Jesus for salvation is this. Perhaps this morning you have felt, couldn't explain it, but Jesus was knocking on your heart saying, you're not close to Me. You don't know Me. And the truth from the Scriptures is this. The wages of sin is death. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Good news is that the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And this morning, if you'd like to come to Jesus for salvation, He is knocking on the door of your heart saying, turn from the pursuit of sin. Turn to me in faith. Hand your life over to me and begin to follow me with all you've got. I'm worth it, says Jesus. I will reward you. I will have fellowship with you. As Alex and the praise team come for our song of invitation, I want to say if you have not yet called on Jesus for salvation, I invite you make your way to the front and help you call on him. He will hear you, and he will save you. Please stand for our song of invitation. You've been listening to Dr. Dan Kitnoya pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Tilton, Illinois. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website, calvarytilton.com. That's calvarytilton.com. Thank you for listening.